I invite you to turn with, with me, if you haven't already, in your copy of the Bible to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28. And if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles this morning, that can be found on page 988. Um, we're drawing our study in 1 Thessalonians to a close this morning, and we are looking at Paul's final instructions to the church. So with that said, hear now the word of the Lord. Again, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, and I'll be reading, as always, out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you may may remember um, that in the late 1990s, uh, numerous people around the world were deeply concerned with what would happen to computer systems when the calendar eventually turned from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000. The the so-called Y2K scare, many of you may remember, arose out of a fear at the time that major computer systems, computer systems from everything from uh, nuclear power plants to airlines to banks, would, when when the new millennium arrived, would somehow crash and cripple the world infrastructure. Um, As I understand it, many of these computer systems at the time operated with a two-digit code rather than a four-digit code for the year, and so the year 1998 in those systems was simply represented as 98. And the problem, it was feared, was that when the year 2000 hit, these systems wouldn't know what to do. Uh, They might think it's the year 1900, and important computer functions that were dependent on having an accurate date would cause serious problems throughout the world. And so in the years leading up to the Y2K scare, you may remember that governments and organizations invested a ton of money to correct that issue. Now, at the end of the day, nothing really happened. I remember hearing about this all throughout 98 and 99. And and when sixth grade Andrew rang in the new year on January 1st, 2000, I recall looking outside, surprised and thankful that there was no mushroom cloud in the distance and that the lights were still on. In the end, a lot of money was invested to prepare these systems and by extension the world for a new century, a new millennium, but everything in the end 
turned out okay, right? We're all standing here, so everything was fine. Well, when we turn to our passage, remember that Paul has had a lot to say himself, especially in the last chapter or so, about a new age, about a new age. Back in chapter 4, Paul talked about uh, the resurrection of believers, whether dead or alive, when Christ comes again, and He comes to consummate that new age that we look forward to. And then a couple weeks ago, we studied in the opening of chapter 5, and and we talked about how the judgment that will fall upon the world at Christ's second coming. But in the midst of everything, Paul has already told us about the new age that's coming. He also suggested that we who belong to Christ by faith already, in one sense, participate in that new age that's eventually coming. For one thing, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, our day of the Lord judgment was already poured out on Christ, on our behalf at the cross. And Paul has already identified us as the people of God, as the church, with metaphors of light and day, metaphors that are characteristic of this new age that's coming into the world. And so on the one hand, we may live in a world of darkness, but on the other hand, we're not characterized by that darkness because we belong now through faith in Christ to the kingdom of light that's coming into the world. In short, we live as believers in the tension of two ages. And as Paul closes out his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, he fires off a number of commands, all of which work together to guide us as a people who belong to that new age, and also to prepare us for the new age that's coming. Just as our world undertook expensive and tedious work in preparation for Y2K, so too Paul calls upon us as the church, as the bride of Christ, to prepare ourselves well for the coming of Christ. You see, all the various commands that Paul issues in these last 16 verses or so, and there are a lot of them, they all might seem somewhat random or scattered. One commentator I read this week noted that at first glance, these commands may appear to be akin to a grocery list. And yet what they all have in common is how we as a church are called to relate to each other in view of who we are and where we're going. And until that day dawns, we as a church are called to build up the body of Christ. And that's our big idea this morning, namely, build up the body of Christ, build up the body of Christ. As we work through the passage before us, we're essentially going to study here what Paul tells us about church life and how we're called to build up each other, something Paul commanded us to do at the end of verse 11. And in particular, we're going to study three areas of church life that Paul tells us to focus on in view of this coming day of the Lord. And here's our outline. First, he's going to talk about relationships in the church. Then he's going to talk about worship in the church. And then third, the aim of the church. If you have one of those outlines that's reflected there, but to to review three points, relationships in the church, the worship of the church, and then three, the aim of the church. So let's look first at this first point, first relationships in the church. 
You know, back when I um, lived in Florida, if you didn't know, um, I lived in Daytona Beach, me and my family, for about 12 years before moving to the tropical paradise of Nebraska about five years ago. Uh, um, one of the more stressful experiences when we lived in Florida every few years was hurricane preparation. If you've ever lived in Florida, you know what that's like. Whenever a hurricane was brewing in the Atlantic and, and its projected path was heading in our direction, well, let's just say that the whole town got a bit restless. Um, grocery stores were quickly overwhelmed, and unless you were quick enough, which I never was, um, you couldn't find a bottle of water, let alone a case of water anywhere. Um, likewise, lines quickly formed at gas stations. People were not just filling up their tanks, but they were also filling up their canisters for generators as well. Uh, strangers often yelled at strangers. Gas stations often ran out of gas before they could serve everyone. In short, hurricane preparation was always quite stressful. People were rarely other-centered, and patience was often lacking as everyone prepared themselves for the storm that was about to come. Well, when we turn to the opening verses in our text, Paul reminds us that in the church, in view of this coming day of the Lord, this storm that he just got done talking about earlier in chapter 5, friends, that cannot be how we relate to each other in the church. Instead, Paul sketches for us here a picture of relationships in the church that are committed relationships, other-centered relationships, Christ-centered relationships. And if you notice, the first set of relationships he expounds upon as he opens up in verse 12 is how we as church members, as the people of God in the church, are called to relate to our leaders. And specifically, Paul has in mind here how church members are called to relate to their elders, those who are responsible for overseeing and shepherding the church. So how is the church and our members called to relate to their elders? Well, look at what Paul says here. For one thing, Paul calls upon all of us to respect our leaders, our elders. Now, the Greek word, that word respect, gets at this idea of knowing the worth of someone and treating them accordingly. And then for another thing, members are called not only to respect, but also to esteem their elders very highly in love, which means thinking highly of them and the work that your elders have gladly sought to undertake. In short, there's a certain deference that Paul calls upon members to give to their elders, a recognition that their calling is a calling from, from God, and an appreciation that even when they have to say hard things or do things that might not be popular in the church, that they're ultimately striving to do what's most biblical and best for a congregation. Now, of course, none of this means that elders are above critique. In fact, notice that in the course of Paul telling the church members to relate to their elders in a particular way, to esteem and respect them, Paul also reminds all of us that an elder has a particular responsibility as well, and members are called to hold elders accountable accordingly. You know, the first thing Paul highlights here is an elder's role in laboring among the congregation, a work that communicates the hard and tedious spiritual work that an elder should be engaged in. An elder should be willing to undertake hard work, difficult work for the good of the church, for the well-being of our members, and ultimately for the glory of God. Likewise, Paul instructs us that an elder should be over the congregation, a word that communicates an elder's duty to actively exercise authority, not, of course, in a heavy-handed way, 
but in a way that seeks to oversee the spiritual well-being of a church. And then finally, Paul calls upon elders to admonish those they oversee, which gets at their responsibility to gently and humbly correct sinners when they start drifting. In short, elders have a responsibility to be active, humble, prayerful, hardworking servants in the church of Jesus Christ. So even as members are called to submit to their elders and to give them deference, and in verse 25, even pray for their elders, well, so too. We're reminded that elders in this dynamic, in this relationship, have a responsibility to take the work in the congregations that they oversee seriously. Now, this isn't the only text in the New Testament that talks about this elder-member dynamic in the life of the church. There are a number of other passages we could turn to that likewise expound upon the responsibility of elders, and then on the other hand, the responsibility of church members. But as it relates to Paul's instructions here in this text, which are primarily geared towards, towards you, towards church members, there are at least two questions I think this raises. The first is this, do you know your elders? Do you know your elders? You see, the word that's translated respect in verse 12, it's interesting. It's literally the word to know, K-N-O-W, the word to know. And while the particular word in context communicates something more than simply knowing who your elders are, it's certainly not less than that. And so one of the questions this challenges us with is whether you have elders to whom you have submitted yourself. Elders you can identify and who can identify you? Do you know the elders you're called to respect and esteem? And if not, what steps do you need to take to more actively know them and invite them in to know you too? That's the first question. And the second is this, are you supporting the work of your elders? In other words, are you letting them in and are you giving them the freedom to do the work that God has called them to do? Notice in particular this last phrase in verse 13, where Paul writes, quote, be at peace among yourselves, be at peace among yourselves. Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem to have anything or little, if anything, to do with having respect or esteeming elders. But I think what, what New Testament commentator Richard Phillips says on this is spot on when he writes, quote, few things distract and discourage a pastor more greatly than when church members level needless complaints against fellow believers or disturb the church with quarrels and strife. You see, how we relate to our elders in the context of the church and how we relate to each other in the context of the church are not in any way disconnected. And in fact, as Paul continues to sketch this picture of a church community, of a church fellowship that belongs to the age to come and how we're supposed to live in view of that age, well, the next set of commands he homes in on deal directly with how members in the church, you, relate to each other in the context of the local church. Now, recall back that, that back in verse 12, so here we're moving on really to verse um, uh, 14 and 15, but back in verse 12, we heard that one of the elders' responsibilities was to admonish those in the congregation. And yet as we continue, we read that that's not a responsibility that belongs exclusively to the elder, because in verse 14, that same responsibility is placed upon you too. It's placed upon members of the church who are specifically called to admonish the idol. Now, that responsibility to admonish, 
It may sound somewhat harsh. After all, who among us likes to be admonished? Uh, but I like what, uh, what Jeffrey Wyma, New Testament commentator, says on this. He writes, quote, admonition for Paul never stems from a judgmental or vindictive spirit, but rather is done out of genuine concern and love for others. And friends, this should be the spirit in which both elders in the church and members in the church admonish one another. It's never with vindictiveness or in spite or with rage. In fact, at the end of verse 14, Paul commands all of us to be patient with everyone. And that speaks into how we execute this command to admonish just as it does with the other commands that Paul gives in verse 14. Admonition is always direct, yes, but it's never devoid of love. And so how does that command, admonishing one another, specifically admonishing the idol, how does that particular command challenge your approach in the church? A couple of weeks ago, I was um, speaking with a pastor friend of mine, um, and he observed something that I thought was um, somewhat interesting. Yeah, he talked about how the general um, Nebraska nice approach to conflict tends to work itself out, both in the church and also more generally in the home and the workplace. Now, if you don't know what Nebraska nice is, it refers to the general passive-aggressive approach to conflict that tends to dominate in the Midwest. I grew up in the Northeast, and in that context, people aren't passive-aggressive, they're just aggressive-aggressive. Um, but what my pastor friend observed is that even though we tend to be more passive-aggressive, less direct in the Midwest, uh, there still reaches a point when we can't hold in those frustrations any longer. And in ev any given situation, there often reaches a point where those frustrations boil over and everything we've been holding in is released in a deluge on the unsuspecting target of our frustrations who may have had no idea that there were frustrations in the first place. But again, in Paul's instructions here, to admonish. He encourages a kind of directness and a kind of directness in love that challenges that approach. Again, admonition is all about being direct, but it's not, or at least it shouldn't ever be driven by anger or motivated by the desire to drive the metaphorical knife deeper into the wound. And importantly, it never stems, or at least it shouldn't stem, from getting our own way in the church. Admonition is never about us. Rather, it's about the glory and honor of Christ and the peace and purity of the church. Notice specifically, as Paul talks about admonition, that he has a specific object in mind in verse 14. He calls upon members to admonish, and specifically, he calls upon members to admonish the idol, ideally, which is probably in context, refers to people in this day, in the church of Thessalonica, who were, for some reason, lazy. They were refusing to work when they could. Perhaps they were spiritually lazy, too. And they were also, in the words of one commentator, rebelliously lazy. Uh, the, the picture is that they're stirring up conflict and strife in the church, really because they have nothing better to do with their lives. And according to Paul, this group should be admonished with directness and with love, because they're bringing serious harm on the church. And I'm sure there are other situations we could think about where that kind of approach in the church is warranted. Where you, if you see something as a member that's damaging the church, uh, if you see sin reigning, and in the spirit of Matthew 18, you go to your brother and sister in love and you admonish them in their sin. 
And the rest of what follows, Paul also calls us as a church body, as members in the church, to be active in all sorts of other ministry too. He mentions those who are faint-hearted. In Greek, that word is literally those who are little-souled, little-souled. For the faint-hearted, we're called to step in and encourage them. And then we're also urged to minister to the weak, those who recognize their sin and need not necessarily rebuke as if they don't see it, but accountability and help in putting their sin to death. And again, in all of these ministry opportunities that Paul sketches for us in the church, he calls us to exercise great patience with each other. He calls us to genuinely seek the good of each other. Don't repay evil with evil. And in every way to pursue unity in the body. Unity in truth, absolutely, but unity nevertheless. Notice that one of Paul's final commands that he gives in our passage, it gets at this goal of unity when Paul writes, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. This so-called kiss greeting, a a kiss on the cheek, uh, was a common greeting in the Greco-Roman world. And the early church, it functioned as a way of expressing love and unity that was supposed to exist in the body. Now, don't worry, I'm not bringing the holy kiss back to harvest. Um, But there are ways that we communicate unity in our own context. We break bread together. We share meals with each other. Sometimes we even hug each other. There's no specific mandate about how to express that unity, but unity is something that Paul calls us to as the people of God, as the people of light to pursue. So given what Paul says about our relationships in the church, with our elders on the one hand and with each other on the other hand, Ask yourself whether or not this marks your approach in the church. Understand that the kind of community that Paul sketches here, it's it's one that has the well-being of the body as its central concern. As a result, this is a fellowship, this is a community that just does not look like the world. This is a fellowship that approaches each other in a way that's fundamentally different. We don't scorn our leaders in the way that perhaps our world does. We don't give up on hard people when they take more than they give. We don't abandon the people we've committed ourselves to when they cease to be useful to us. This is a fellowship that builds up each other because we recognize who we belong to. We understand that the stakes are high, especially in view of the coming of Christ and the need to stay awake and stay sober in view of His coming. But we also recognize, and this is important, that everything Paul calls us to do in this passage, Jesus has already done for us, which is why we can be a fellowship of grace. Recall, for example, that one of the things Paul just commanded us to do as the body is to help the weak, verse 14, help the weak. And yet the only reason we can do that is because Christ first laid down his life for us when we were weak. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, all of these commands concerning our relationships in the church, they're quite challenging in a number of ways, but they're nevertheless made possible by Jesus, who gave himself up for his bride, for his church, who even now builds his church such that the gates of hell will not prevail, so that we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, might build each other up in love. So that's the first part of our passage. Friends, tend to the relationships we have in the church 
But as we continue in Paul's instructions, notice that he next tells us how we build up the body of Christ likewise through our worship. So again, uh, if our horizontal relationships with each other, with our elders, that was the focus really in verses 12 through 15 or so. Well, when we turn to verses 16 through 22, Paul moves now to our vertical relationship. And he's specifically concerned with our worship as a church, with our worship as a church. Now, that's not to say that the commands that follow here don't have any bearing on how we relate to the Lord in our individual lives. They most certainly do. Uh, But the commands in these verses are in the Greek, all second person plural. They're addressed to the whole congregation as it's gathered. And as they direct our worship now, they also prepare us as a people of light, a people who belong to the age to come for the eternal worship that characterizes that coming age. So how then does Paul direct our worship life now as a church in preparation for that age? Well, the first area he homes in on in verses 16 through 17 or so is what I'm going to call our prayer and praise. And Paul begins by by pulling no punches when he calls us simply to rejoice always, rejoice always. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says something nearly identical when in Philippians 4.4 he writes, from prison, mind you, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now rejoice, and more than that, to rejoice always. That's a pretty bold command, Paul, and maybe it raises the question, Paul, what if we're not in a joyful mood? Tell me, Paul, what are we supposed to do in that case? Well, it's important to note that joy, the joy that Paul has in mind here isn't joy that pretends things are better off than they actually are. It's not joy that reflects a trouble-free life, as if only when things are going well, only then can we rejoice always. No. Rather, this is a confident joy that Paul commands, a confident joy that trusts that whatever the burdens we bear or the suffering we're called to endure in this life under the sun, that God is faithful to his own and that Christ Jesus holds his people fast. This is a joy that's confident in the words of Paul elsewhere, that this light momentary affliction, whatever it is, is preparing for us a weight of glory, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, I'm reminded of Jesus's interaction um, with his disciples in the so-called bread of life discourse at the end of John chapter 6. Now, in that passage, John chapter 6, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, Jesus teaches at length in that passage uh, about how it's only in Him that eternal life is found. It's only by feeding upon Him, spiritually speaking, the bread of life that we have life. Uh, But when Jesus finishes up, He wraps up this long discourse in John chapter 6, John tells us that, quote, when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And shortly after, many of those who followed him up until that point end up turning away from him. And so Jesus then turns to the 12. He turns to his uh, immediate inner circle of disciples and he asks, do you guys want to go away as well? But Simon Peter stands up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, to follow Christ for the 12, for, for Peter included, and for you and me, it, it, it does, it doesn't, it, that didn't require any less cost than the other people who followed Jesus up until that point. 
And yet, what Simon Peter points out, what he seems to recognize, um, is that following Christ and recognizing who Christ is makes everything else, every other trouble we face in this world, pale in comparison. It's, it's similar to what Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 3.8 when he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, understand that this call to rejoice always or to pray without ceasing, or give thanks in all circumstances. This isn't a call to lie to yourself and pretend that things are better off than they actually are. And neither is it a call to abandon all of other responsibilities as if there's literally never a moment when you're not in prayer. But this is a call to let your relationship with the Lord drive your approach to the good and the bad, to the highs and the lows, and more particularly, to continue gathering with the body in worship. Not because you're always happy with everyone in the body, but because you know and trust that this is where God works on His people. That there's no greener grass, so to speak, outside the covenant community in its worship. And it's worship with the people of God like this that's our ultimate future when Christ comes again and the new age dawns. But beyond this posture of prayer and praise and the good and the bad and the highs and the lows that Paul would have us cultivate as a church by first and foremost coming together and worshiping as the body of Christ, well, Paul continues in what follows to probe our approach to worship and challenge us a little bit by turning next to this issue of quenching the Spirit and prophecy. Now, in verses 18 through 22, what Paul essentially, at the end of the day, has in mind is our approach to the Word of God, to the the Bible, and whether or not we evaluate preaching and teaching from the Bible that happens in the church accurately. Understand that what we do as pastors, for example, in preaching and teaching every Sunday is to declare what God has already spoken in His Word. Nothing nothing more than that. And when we do that, the Spirit works upon all of us to illuminate the Word and help us apply it in any given real-life situation we face. We as pastors certainly don't bring new or fresh revelation in preaching or teaching. The Bible, after all, is sufficient, and nothing else can or should be added to it. But when we bring the Word of God on Sunday mornings, or you in your own life, you read the Word of God on your own, we're called to receive it for what it is and to evaluate everything that's said in the name of the Lord, including from here, from the pulpit, according to what the Bible says is true. You see, when Paul warns against quenching the Spirit and despising prophecies, what that means in our own day, in our own worship, would be either to reject the Bible as the Word of God, or to close our ears to the things the Bible declares and proclaims just because we don't like to hear it, or to scorn those who teach from the Word when what they're saying is in fact right and good and true. Again, our responsibility as a church that seeks to build up each other in view of the coming day is to receive the truth for what it is and let it illuminate our minds and hearts, even if that means adjusting some of our most dearly held assumptions about God or the world or the church. And so then, ask yourself this question with these things in mind. 
when I come into worship and I hear the Word of God, or I read the Word of God on my own, in my own personal devotional life, am I looking only to confirm what I already think and know is true, or do I humbly sit underneath the Word, letting it encourage me when I need encouragement, convict me where I need conviction, and transform the way that I think about God and His world? So, as a church, the Word of God is central to all that we do. And this is why everything in our service, if you've noticed it before, points to the pulpit. The pulpit is central in our worship, not because of the person behind the pulpit, but because of the Word that's spoken and declared from the pulpit. Understand that the church is built up when truth prevails, and so ask yourself the question, do I receive God's Word And do I evaluate truth, truth that builds up together the body of Christ, rightly and accurately? So Paul encourages us here to to build up the church. First, we read in our horizontal relationships. Then he just talked about how we build up each other by evaluating the Word rightly in our prayer and praise, in our vertical relationship. But as he closes out the letter to the church in Thessalonica, he leaves us with the reminder that all we do in both our horizontal relationships and in our vertical relationship has a particular aim, a particular trajectory to it. And this leads to our final point, third, the aim of the church. So, where are we going? Well, that's a question my children often ask when we get in the car, even if you've already told them half a dozen times. Uh, But given all of the distractions we face in our own lives, all the ways it's possible for us in the church to get derailed by superficial occupations. That's a question we always need to keep before us. Where are we going? And thankfully, it's a question that Paul touches upon here in the closing benediction, the sending blessing of the letter. Now, on the one hand, Paul reminds us in the benediction that what we aim for as a church is essentially our sanctification, our sanctification, uh, such that when Christ comes again, we might be found blameless. Now, earlier in 1 Thessalonians, back in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul got at something almost identical when he wrote, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, sanctification, you know this big word, maybe you don't know what it means. We've talked about this a little bit before. Sanctification refers to holiness or our set-apartness, And as Christians, there is an objective sense in which we've already been set apart from the world to belong to the Lord when we become Christians. But then there's also a sense, a progressive sense, where over the course of our entire lives, we're seeking to grow in holiness, growing in our set-apartness as we pursue by faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit all the things that Paul has already urged us to do in the second half of the letter, things like abstaining from sexual immorality and coming alongside our church family to build up each other in love. As a community, a fellowship that belongs to this dawning new age, it should be our goal to grow in becoming who we already are. And Paul has had a lot to say about how we do that, especially in the passage that we're considering this morning. Our sanctification then, generally speaking, is central to what we aim for as a church and what we should be tending to individually and corporately. And yet, As we continually seek in our own lives, in our own sanctification, to put off the old and to put on the new, we cannot miss the fact that we are not sanctified completely nor presented blameless in the end because of anything that we've done. 
Notice that Paul's closing words here are not one final rallying cry for the church to get to work. Instead, this is Paul's confident prayer that as the church pursues by faith holiness and unity in every way that he just articulated, even when sometimes we mess up and we get it wrong, it's God who provides the growth. It's God who through Christ forgives us when we fall short, and it's God who holds us fast along the way. Paul reminds us in verse 24 that he who calls you is faithful, it's he who will surely do it. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul gets at something similar when he tells us in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, perfection, at the day of Christ Jesus. This ultimate goal then of standing blameless when Christ comes again, understand it's an impossible goal until we remember that we have already, through faith in Christ, been declared blameless in the eyes of God and at the end of the day, the one who has justified us, the one who sanctifies us, will indeed perfect us when Christ comes again and we're given new resurrection bodies fit to dwell in the new kingdom, the new age, in our eternal and forever home. And so, yes, take seriously your sanctification in every way that Paul just articulated. Seek to build each other up in love in our church family. Don't give up on each other. But don't forget to quote the recent hymn that when we fear our faith will fail, it's Christ who holds us fast. Our aim as Christians and as the church is our sanctification, our holiness. But the only way that happens is if you're fixed on the grace of God through faith in Christ. And so are your eyes fixed on Christ? Do you rest in Christ alone for your salvation as he's freely offered in the gospel? Or are you striving instead for some idea of morality, absent of divine grace, detached from the moorings of the Bible, and just kind of hoping that in the end that'll be enough? Brothers and sisters, if that's your approach to life, be warned that in the end your moral striving, whatever it is, will not be enough. But take heart, because Christ's work and the grace of Christ is available to you right now if you would only make him your only comfort in life and death through faith alone. So as we prepare to close and then express our unity as a body through the Lord's Supper, remembering along the way how that unity rests on what Christ has accomplished by spilling his blood for us, let me leave us with this. Friends, pursue in grace and love the peace and purity of Jesus' church. You see, at its heart, this picture of church life that Paul sketches in our passage is one that calls us, on the one hand, to be about the peace of the church, which means eschewing divisiveness and, and pursuing each other in love, even when that's hard to do. But then on the other hand, the purity of the church is also in view. When we're called upon to rest ourselves on the bedrock of God's word and settling for nothing less than the truth. Now, this general call to pursue the peace and purity of the church sounds like a fairly straightforward thing to do, but when we get into all the particulars, especially as they're expressed in our text, this is a challenge. It's a challenge, I'm sure, that confronts many of our idols, many of our visions for what the church should be or do, but when we humble ourselves to recognize that this, what we find in our text, is God's vision for the church, and then we rest ourselves on the grace and love of God in Christ for us, we can then approach our own discipleship and life in the church in a way that honors God and that seeks to present to the world 
a fellowship that though exists in the world, we do not reflect the values of this world and we do not ultimately belong to this world. Instead, we are a fellowship that lives in anticipation of the age to come, an age that Paul's already spoken numerous points about in 1 Thessalonians. And so with that in mind, brothers and sisters, pursue in grace and love the peace and purity of Jesus' church, the church that Jesus Christ purchased for himself by his precious blood. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for the church, and we confess that though uh, church life is often hard, though maybe it's our propensity to to give up on each other from time to time, and, and though we forget that you are the one who builds your church such that the gates of hell will not prevail. Lord, we confess that we forget these things often. But I pray, Lord, that, that, th- that your word would correct our approach to relationships in the church, would correct our approach to, to worship in the church, and you would help us to think rightly about your church, that it would be our heart's desire to pursue the peace and purity of the church and all the, way, all, all the ways that we do that, Lord, that we would rest from start to finish on the fact that you love your bride, that you gave yourself up for her, and that you are the one who builds your church. We pray that you would impress these truths upon our minds and hearts, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.